0: when Waxman said not too long ago that he was gonna be reopening it in a hotel in Midtown, I literally stood up and jumped up and down and did a little bit of a dance of excitement. It was like I was thrilled.
1: It's exciting. Have have you been to the the reincarnated
0: jams? Well this is the thing I have.
1: So here in the Eater Upsell studios, we are joined by Gabrielle Hamilton
0: the chef of the iconic New York restaurant, Prune, author of Blood, Bones and Butter and the Prune Cookbook, and the star of the most recent season of Mind of a Chef, arguably the coolest food TV show going on right now. And it's going to be an awesome conversation.
1: Jams was the biggest It was the the California cuisine restaurant in New York of the 80s.
0: Yeah, it was huge. And it, it like taught New York that Fine dining didn't have to be stuffy, white tablecloth. It introduced them to the whole sort of philosophy of Alice Waters and Chez Panisse. And by the time it closed in the late 80s, it had basically lit a fire under the New York restaurant scene and completely changed everything forever. I was so psyched to go. I went not too long ago. And, um, you know, you want to be generous to a restaurant when it's in the first couple of weeks of its new life. And so I went with an open mind. And I went with a bunch of, of very open-minded fellow diners, you know, food writers and professionals who were all super psyched. And we proceeded to have an entirely unmemorable meal. It wasn't bad. It was just not special.
1: I was super hesitant about getting enthusiastic about this project for that very reason when I read
0: the specs of it. Yeah, and and and, you know... I still think jams is magnificent, like the historical jams. And I'm I'm Jams is my jam. Everyone's saying that. I can't believe I said that. Guys, definitely edit that out. Oh man, I shouldn't have said that. It's the dumbest joke. But seriously though, like jams is amazing. And jams is jams was the jam. It was like everything. And 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 this new version of it kind of feels like you're in a fairly generic West Elm showroom. Like it's a lot of exposed wood and like earthy tones and and the menu is a little bit of a hybrid of, like, some of the greatest hits from the 80s, which I personally was not there for but have read about extensively, you know, like like lots of red pepper, you know, like these sort of, like, really 80s-forward flavors, like arugula and goat cheese and things like that. Um, and then some of the hits from Jonathan Waxman's West Village restaurant, Barbudo, which is, like, perpetually packed, perpetually everyone's favorite. And then a whole bunch of sort of random, this is in the lobby of a hotel restaurant, kind of foods and it just sort of like it failed to live up to the spectacle and it failed to live up to the history and it could change i mean it could get better it could get better but it it made me wonder if it's ever really worth resuscitating the great restaurants of the past
1: to my eyes it seems like it can't capture the essential thing that made it what it was which was the phenomenon of that restaurant opening at that time in new york With that kind of service, with that kind of food, it would have to be something different, but just as crunchy and interesting to be a true revival of this great restaurant.
0: Do you think it's ever possible to revive a great restaurant? I mean, I've heard like rumblings of bringing lutets back. I mean, and, and people want this. Like, we all want to return to the golden age. But like, is this like raising a zombie? Like, is this a bad idea?
1: I think it's. I think it's almost always a bad idea. And I equate it to this. It's like you remember when. In the 90s, um, Fleetwood Mac got back together. Yes. There was
0: like a Disney Channel special about it.
1: Yeah. And they were all not super old at that point. Like they kind of still. They kept it tight. They kept it tight, especially Lindsey Buckingham. That guy's an age. But then they like would take these, you know, publicity photos. And it was like they were able to somehow recapture the magic a little bit. And they recorded six new songs that all sucked. And then they just did like live versions of their favorite songs and that was enough to get them back on the top of the charts
0: they made a lot of money
1: it was just exciting enough for people to be like hey yeah i remember it's fleetwood mac they're back
0: this is like the whole hollywood philosophy too of like let's turn every single board game from your childhood into like an action blockbuster yeah you know or like resuscitate every saturday morning cartoon but with like sex and edginess right like what i i i love nostalgia i love it i love looking backwards and i love bringing backwards looking things into the present day but then it i'm just i'm just constantly disappointed
1: i say that it's more important to have the things in your memory as being perfect than to try and resuscitate them and slightly ruin it's like kind of the, the star wars thing or more uh i think more to the point in this case of jams it's like the new indiana jones it's like they made three indiana jones movies that and they were perfect they were perfect except for they're not perfect but they're they are what they are they hold
0: up well in my They hold up
1: well (laughs) people love them and then they made one that was like you know could have even potentially maybe been like the other ones and it wasn't
0: it totally wasn't like it was i mean that was the one where the twist ending was spoiler alert it was aliens
1: it was aliens
0: it was like thousand year old alien there was
1: a part uh a comedic scene where sheila was being dragged to some desert and he got a bunch of cactuses in his crotch
0: that's like high
1: cinema uh, yeah and, and the funny thing is that there was never anything like that in the original indiana jones movies there was never any teen-based slapstick and crotch comedy
0: yeah and i, I guess i guess the new version of jams is the like new version of Indiana Jones. If there were aliens at the end of the meal, right. that would have been kind of exciting.
1: Well, as I see it, Jonathan Waxman was maybe just putting this restaurant together. He's opened a million restaurants and many of them very successful. Many of them have gotten very good r- reviews. Maybe putting this place together, he kind of knew some of the components. He knew oh, wood fired this. It's going to be like that. And maybe he, as he was putting it together, maybe he sensed this very thing that you're talking about, the sort of potential resurgence of the 80s, and all he said was, yeah, whatever. It's going to it's gonna be called jams. I'm going to serve four of the old dishes. We're going to say it's jams 2.0. That's like literally all he had to do.
0: I, yeah, but you know what? He didn't have to do it. And I think this was the thing. So one of the folks I had dinner with was Eater's news editor, Daniela Galarza. And she had this amazing, perfect insight when we were walking away feeling a little bit disappointed by everything that had preceded, And, what she said was he didn't have to call it jams. Well, that's exactly. He didn't exactly, have to do it. He yeah. could have called it like wax by Waxman Jonathan Waxman. on the park. Right. Or like any of any number of things. And if he had just sort of like done a nod on the menu, like he could have still done the red pepper pancakes topped with like creme fraiche and, and caviar and like done the full sort of like moment of the 80s and called it like jam- the pan- like the red pepper pancakes from Jams and that would have been thrilling and it wouldn't have implied all of the context and all of the sort of like, you know, shoulder pads, glitter eyeshadow, crazy coke shit of the 80s that comes along with like my fantasy faux nostalgia right. of Jams. Right. I guess I, w- I want like a Disney version. I want like like, you know, 80s land like, sophisticated 80s <laughs> See, my my
1: my thinking about stuff like this is, like, you know, we're all restaurant dorks. We read about Lutas. We read about, like, the original Le Cirque, La Caravelle, and these kind of places. And I just really think that, you know, if you never got to go to them, like I didn't, and I don't think you did, I think that the best thing to do is to read about them and read an old review and go to it in your mind and... Go to the old establishments that are still around that are still doing the old same thing, but the zombie restaurant,
0: yeah, is always gonna be a zombie. Be a zombie. It's always gonna be a zombie. It's it's it, and you're gonna have to like run really like and murder it. And you're
1: gonna run, and but the weird thing is is that they're actually like the 28 days later oh, zombies. The yeah, they're zombie. the fast moving zombies. <laughs> so exactly. they will
0: catch you, and you will become a zombie too, and yeah. it will all be over. All because you just really wanted an right. restaurant.
1: It's like if it's like if it's like if the eater upsell, people stop listening to it, which is never going to happen. No, this will. And last then they forever. were like, "Guess what? We're going to redo the eater upsell. It's uh, with Helen's cousin and um, Pauly Shore Jr. standing in for Greg."
0: I feel like that's a pretty fair comparison for you, actually. Oh,
1: uh, thank you.
0: I, I I'm not sure if it's a compliment, but like, yeah, I feel like like. Uh, a, a junior version of Poly Shark could totally rock a, a morbido vibe. I'm feeling it. Thanks. You're welcome.
1: <laughs> so, Gabrielle, what's been your relationship traditionally with food television? Um, did you watch it like, you know, did you watch like Top Chef and stuff like that when it first came out? No.
0: next question no 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 no. I
1: I haven't watched
2: um any of it um unless I've been in it
1: (laughs) and then you watch it yeah
2: yeah I mean I've I've um I don't watch the um food television much and um I have watched it so I'm not ignorant and when I'm gonna speak disparagingly about it I hope I'm doing it now with (laughs) um some research but uh I've done some television. I've definitely put my foot in there just to see what everything is. You don't know what you like or don't like until you do it. Or that's it's I'm a slow learner, so I have to do the thing before I know. So that's been my relationship to television thus far. And then mind of Chef came along and um uh it's like it's like finding the right partner just to go on the best date.
0: <laughs> that's really gratifying to hear. I think, you know, we talk to a lot of chefs who have varying relationships with television, like varying emotional relationships, and it's really nice that you found a TV show that feels
2: good. Well, they don't don't force you into its shape. They let your own shape take shape, if you will. So the other thing that I found incredible about this series is most television that I've ever done, you have to you know, sort of cram it into your 15 second um, soundbite and the money shot has to be hit. And with this series, you have so much time to expand. So I often speak in paragraphs, but I'm often quoted in single sentences. And in this episode, in these episodes, I get to articulate the whole paragraph metaphorically and, and literally. So it's, you have the time to expand and really be, all that you are
0: well and you're you know I think while you're known primarily for being a chef and a restaurant owner you are a writer like not even like in your own right but like you know in a completely separate completely equal line in my opinion at least to being a chef so the idea of of speaking like literally not just metaphorically is is really gratifying I think for me to see you get to do that instead of just sort of like cracking an egg into a bowl and talking about a simple tuesday night dinner
2: right i'm i'm not so much about the food i'm more about the narrative around the food and how we got here and what it means et cetera. and um yeah in aggregate there are eight episodes which i could be the author of each one and by the time you get to the end i feel like i have gotten the opportunity to write it's not really writing because it's obviously it's television and you're talking like air and, quotes writing, right? <laughs> um, at least the contents of the mind of this chef.
0: The idea of the narrative around the food um, really speaks to my experiences at Prune, your restaurant. Actually, I know Greg if you kind of have had the same experience, but like the dishes are your your style of cooking as has been extensively chronicled is very very personal and is totally devoid from like the the boom and bust cycle of trends and kale and juicing and cupcakes and stuff like that and and oftentimes these dishes are so quirky and they're always so perfect once they resolve themselves but there are such implied stories behind all of them
2: Yeah, all the food is um, generally autobiographical or that I have deep personal experience with I don't um, invent anything But I certainly have eaten a lot of things in their sort of originating location, if that makes sense. Or I have a a relationship with a plate of food um, that goes way back. Not just, um, hmm, what are we going to do with the tomatoes this season? Um, And what can we do to F around with them and make them um, palatable to the guest? I'm just really putting tomatoes on the plate that I've eaten
1: many times in a context that matters to me. So correct me if I'm wrong, but like a year, a year and a half ago, didn't you just kind of do a big overhaul of the menu, right? I did. What happened is I published the cookbook, the prune cookbook, and that had
2: this effect on me that I had not anticipated, but it it put 15 years of prune in a very organized and safe container where it will live forever. And at the very moment that that came to life, the book, the dishes themselves, for me, died. <laughs> I could not face them again. They're what do you just, mean? Like you just I didn't, didn't taste another, good? No, no, no. I just didn't have any um, spirit for them. I I had cooked the sweetbreads for 15 years. I've cooked the bones for 15 years. I've cooked the all of the foods in that book I have um, a 15-year history with. And at the end of the book writing process also, I realized, oh, I don't even really cook like this exactly anymore i have evolved in 15 years of cooking obviously i have much greater technique and um, i've traveled much more and read more and had many many significant experiences since then so it's felt it felt kind of outdated i guess maybe like i don't know a band that writes a song in their first couple of albums and then they evolve 15 years later, and they want to make slightly different music, but you still recognize the band. So it's not like Prince, so different. Like suddenly, I'm a new um, concept or new um, new kinds of food. It's just I don't want to make those dishes any longer. I was ready to relinquish all of them,
1: and they had a safe place to
2: live. I don't know if that has any resonance for you. Does that make sense? Yeah,
1: and uh, like a band, if you wanted to in 15 years, you could bring it back as like, you know, Gabrielle Hamilton plays the first 15 years of Prune.
2: Well, we certainly get requests all the time. (laughs) Do you honor them? Of course. Yeah. I mean, within, you know, yes, we make sweetbreads all the time. I mean, those
0: sweetbreads are iconic.
2: They're pretty damn good. But I imagine
0: it's like how the Rolling Stones probably feel like playing Satisfaction over over and over and over and over again. And it's like, like no, it's it's great and it's awesome and like I'm glad I wrote this resonant song that will define America for X number of years, but oh for fuck's sake, I don't want to play it again.
1: So prune <sighs> is in. A... She's nodding. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. <I'm... laughs> prune is in a neighborhood that you know definitely cover on Eater a lot, the East Village, and I'm just fascinated by the tremendous turnover of restaurants in this neighborhood. I mean,
0: especially in the 15 years that Prune has been like an anchor.
1: And it's just sometimes seems super cruel that there can be this hit and, you know, 18 months later it's done things like that. And I'm just curious, what do you, what's the secret? What's the, what's the secret to longevity in this neighborhood? Have you developed customers that have you know, kept it fresh and alive or is it the food? Is it the experience? Is it you? Is it you? <laughs> the secret.
2: Um, well, I think there are a lot of things probably at play for one. Um, maybe primarily, it was my ambition to endure. So I didn't have any idea to um, be big and um, hot. I really wanted to be sort of small and warm <laughs> for a long time and the I have a long lease and I wanna take very precious tender care of that lease and I did not open up with a concept that was um, temporal. I knew to work in the classic idiom, and I know that the classics endure forever. I still wanna read Shakespeare, I still wanna read Faulkner, I wanna go back and um, revisit the classics all the time in the same way in cooking, so I think that's part of it also. Um, I don't know if this accounts for anything, but I do hear myself saying the same things to the staff, now that I said 15 years ago so it's kind of like being willing to watch the water boil every day you know you you boil a lot of water in your career and if you're 30 years in you've boiled water every day at some point it's the same thing so you just say the same things over and over again which may sound tedious but in the end it's what endures it makes the cook who cooked it 10 years ago um, as consistent as the cook who's cooking now, 16 years later. Or I said that backwards, but yeah, the cook who's now cooking at Prune is hearing the same things from me that I said to cooks um, in year two, one, seven. Does that make sense? Yeah. It so does. there's a kind of reliable consistency. I mean, we F it up. It's not, you know, I've had some bad nights at Prune and so have you. We all have. <laughs> but I mean, in the main, you can pretty much rely on, um, by the end of your experience there, Feeling like, oh yeah, prune's still chugging along.
0: I think that's in a lot of ways one of the defining elements of a neighborhood restaurant is that like the quality is something not that prune isn't like the quality isn't immediately apparent on a first visit, but like the quality is something that compounds and 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 exponentially grows and just really reveals itself over the duration of a diner's experience of the restaurant. Whereas like you might just have one shot to go to like Le Den or Eleven Madison Park or Cezanne or something like that, so it's gotta be nailed. But there's there's a sort of like slower blossoming and depth to well, the experience. that's exactly right. Local.
2: I think also that's true just in the meal itself. That um, if I'm being true about how we miss our mark sometimes, when I eat at Prune and we're missing some marks, I do still have a feeling at the end of the meal that well, I had a very good cocktail. There was something quite good on the speakers. I really can't believe somebody played that Barry Manilow album. <laughs> um, there was a very friendly person either at my table or at the door or behind the bar. And um, in general, I had some delicious food. Maybe one thing was oversalted or overdressed. But so it's the same kind of build in that way that um, it reveals itself in aggregate. So you come back and have more and more experiences and you feel like, oh.
0: yeah like there's there's goodwill in the bank too yeah you
1: know do you make it a point to eat in your restaurants frequently i do how often
2: pretty frequently i try and eat um i don't know once a month once every six weeks what's that like it's so funny i've always laughed about this because you don't really need um secret shoppers or whatever that's called you know this sort of incognito um ha ha i caught you i'm the freaking owner (laughs) the chef and owner and they still do incredible things wrong when I'm sitting right there. <laughs> so it's um it's excellent for me to eat there. I'm always um, learning and seeing what's going on, and um, often pleased and sometimes disappointed. But it's easy to tweak right away.
0: What do you order when you eat in your own restaurant?
2: I often order the thing I'm least attracted to on the menu. If my heart's not in it, I'm like, why? This doesn't sound good. Why doesn't it sound appealing? And usually I write a menu where I'm in love with every single thing on it. But sometimes something runs its course or I know the staff doesn't love making it. It has a, a difficulty or a annoying aspect to its prep um, or its me's. And so I often order that thing to see if I'm willfully insisting on it um stupidly or if i'm right just stick with it and we should keep running that dish
1: so do you feel the need now to check out what uh, everyone else is doing do you eat out a lot do you see what people i don't
2: are- at all i i have so such good news about the east village <laughs> <laughs> right now which is that we have some excellent restaurants and i just go to the same three or four all the time and i have not I'm so behind on the checking things out to the point where, as you just mentioned, if they don't make it past 18 months, I completely missed it. I didn't get there. I usually wait until about eight people tell me I have to go and then I get there.
0: That feels like a good rule. Like if eight different yeah, people, yeah. I mean, it's, it's a, couple a lot of people, people.
2: Well, then you know. <laughs> then you know for real it's the right thing. But um, man, you have to go to Vicks if you haven't been and. Um, eat what Hillary Sterling's cooking and you have to go to, I love Bobby Flay's restaurant Gato. It's so good there. Anyway, empeon.
0: It's I don't have to get
2: really too far away from
0: home. <laughs> that's a, That's lucky. I used to live in a neighborhood that was an absolute restaurant wasteland and recently moved to one that is like the Garden of Eden. And I'm so yeah. happy to yeah. be able to just walk to have dinner like on a whim. It feels so much more human.
2: Oh my God. When you don't want to cook and you don't want to go to your own restaurant, and then you step out on your block and you're kind of like, "Oof, where am I? Going? I don't want falafel and I don't want fake good food.
0: Fake good food. That's the <laughs> that's the phrase I've been looking for for my entire life. Fake good food.
2: Right. They have the right table and the right light fixture and the right menu. The ingredients sound good and you're just like, mm, "I know this is gonna suck." <laughs>
1: like- so, in blood, bones, and butter. I think you talked about this, this notion of TDM a lot that comes up in restaurants and having to kind of keep things going. And I understand that that's a lot of like restaurant life is like you're, you know, you got to you got to do this thing. You got to keep it going. You got to keep this thing alive. And it takes up a lot of your time. How did you find the time to write these books while doing all that stuff? What was your process while keeping (laughs) this restaurant alive?
2: I was so naive and stupid. I didn't know you could hire a chef de cuisine, which I should have done, but I didn't. I wrote the um, Blood, Bones, and Butter. It was a kind of uh, painful, excruciating, um, guerrilla kind of writing where I wrote in every interstice I could find. So um, I would get off the subway and sit on the platform for a second just to get some crap down on the page, and then i get back on the subway and finish my journey. If I was in a car stuck in traffic, I would, you know, drop my eyes to the page and write some stuff down, and keep going after the red light changed. I wrote in between pushes on the line. We would put out the six thirty seating, and there'd be a lull, and I'd grab the brown paper from the, as we used to cover the tables with, and with my sharpie just get some stuff down. And I think that's how the book got written um, in the kind of early phase of writing where you kind—I of, mean, the way I write where you just um, spit it all out then the actual discipline of writing where you have to shape it up and whip it and edit and delete and restitch it back together again all of that I did um, well you know under duress of the deadline (laughs) and I've already cashed the check and I would just put my kids in the kennel and say, I don't even know who you are (laughs) and you're not allowed to know me and just lock myself in the apartment and smoke and drink and get it done.
0: Classic author style.
2: I mean, it's it. I don't know if that's actually classic author style. If I were only a writer, I would not do it that way. It's not good for your body or your children or your restaurant. It's um I'm not exaggerating. You know, it hurts. It really, it hurts people and it hurts yourself. So
1: I think I, I would do it differently. Did you do the second book differently than the first one, process ones? No, I
2: did it the exact same way because <laughs> I'm not just a writer. it's the problem. Right. I have to give up my day job in order to be a full-time writer, but I don't want to give up my day job. I love my day job. So I'm always trying to run the restaurant and you know, the restaurant is not the only thing a chef does who has a restaurant. You also are doing the cooking class at the Gustavus, or you're going to the food and wine festival, or you're asked to uh, do a benefit or a charity. So you also have these kind of extracurricular career obligations. And, you know, I have the people I keep mentioning, I have these small people (laughs) that still need my attention. So, um, I didn't do it differently. I spent, um, like a whole summer vacation telling my kids to leave me alone and I would go to the library every day and come back and they'd sort of mope like where are you and same with the restaurant like where are you we're still running cabbage and it's June I'm like I know we need a new menu item but I can't do it right now so um as I said everyone gets hurt but Third book's gonna be a charm.
1: Yeah. I'm, sh- I'm sure I'll really get the second right. down by Third then. Third book, you'll get that cabin, you'll light the candle and you'll. That's you right, someone
2: else ritual. will cook. I'm, I'm desperate to have a real chef de cuisine who will just um, make prune so beautiful in my absence and I'm just gonna come in, count the money.
0: Sounds like heaven. Yeah.
2: Have a manicure.
0: <laughs> the prune cookbook is so unlike other cookbooks. It's um. It's it's sort of a designed to be kind of like a, it seems like a facsimile of basically the the cook's Bible at the restaurant, right? So there's margin notes and and everything is written um, as if it's presuming that the home cook is the line cook working at Prune, and there's not head notes and and it's very idiosyncratic and sort of secretly autobiographical in a way that I find very similar to the food that you cook is secretly autobiographical. Well, uh-huh. not secretly, because you said it 20 minutes ago. but Yeah, the book, it's, um,
2: it is is a direct, um, I guess, facsimile. You're right to say that. Um, it's a lift of the notebook we cook out of. So we have the big three-ring binder, and it's as if I just pulled that off the shelf and Xeroxed the pages and left it on the subway, and you found it. I, of course, tried to do it the right way. I know what a cookbook is supposed to look like, Um and I shorted out in the first 10 minutes, literally. I just, I don't use a cookie sheet. I don't use a four inch pan often. I don't use an electric oven. I um, So all of my language started to uh, die on the page. It was just lying. I was lying. I don't shop in a grocery store. I don't talk to a home cook ever. So I ended up just leaving it the way it is. And it's, um, extremely true. And in my opinion, anything really true resonates with everyone. If it's um, super authentic and you can tell, and it's not like I don't have a writing education. So I have a huge background and I knew um, to write the cookbook in a way that you will understand it. You, the average home cook or the non-restaurant worker, um, it's like writing a play. You can never speak directly to the audience. You can't break the fourth wall. And yet, the audience has to know everything that's going on. And frequently, or most often, the audience member knows more about what's going on on stage than the actors in the play know. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah. And it's a really fascinating and I think accurate way of describing the experience of reading and cooking from this book. I mean, I think for me, there were these incredible moments of pleasure where I sort of like in the reading and interpretation of it where I was like, oh, like I know what you're talking about and like you get to be in on the joke and you get to sort of solve the puzzles In and, and I'm making it sound like much more obviously jokey and puzzly than it is, but like I felt um, well, right. empowered, I, mean, I you're, guess. You're
2: taught in writing school to speak to the highest mind in the room and that's of course what I've done in the book is um, I'm not going to assume you're a moron. I'm going to assume that actually you probably do some cooking and you probably even have better equipment than I do. Um, and I just speak the way I speak at the restaurant, which is, it has range. I mean, sometimes I'm talking to my chef who has, I don't know, eight years in the business. And sometimes I'm speaking to a 19 year old extern who doesn't know the difference between parsley and cilantro, as you discover when you send him down to the walk-in to come back with the (laughs) ingredient and he has the wrong thing. So you have to speak in all of these, um, at all of these levels to all the people that might be trying to get the recipe accomplished. And that's my only goal at the end is I need these recipes accomplished um, accurately, consistently, and as much as possible without you hurting yourself. Like I feel very concerned with preserving the life of the cook and the body of the cook and um, also the product. I don't want stuff thrown away or burnt or ruined. So there's a lot of um, information in the recipes for how to protect your own self.
0: That's interesting and novel and rare. I think Um, this uh, maybe I'm selling other restaurants short, but I think there is often a a sort of presupposition that anybody whose name isn't on the menu is just sort of like a robot body in the kitchen who should be worked until they cannot be worked any longer.
2: Oh, man,
0: that's I
2: don't know if that's still happening, but you should see how hard these people work. It's every day an astonishment to me and um, it makes my heart just boom 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 and swell and I have intense respect for the people that haul it out for very little pay very long hours under very hot cramped ugly conditions and um, I have no wish to um, beat that you know mule (laughs) (laughs) I want to I want to give that mule a feed bag really and some water.
0: It, it seems like there is finally starting to be a little bit of a sea change in, in terms of public awareness and, and also industry awareness of labor and wages and, and the sort of quality of life that we can expect to have if we decide to become people who work in kitchens. I mean, is that a thing that you're aware of or part of or excited about or how to make the quality of life for a line cook better? Yeah, I guess.
2: Yeah. I mean, I I don't know the answer. It's very hard to solve this problem. The hours themselves are going to be long. I love the McDonald's or fast food $15 an hour minimum wage, which we've adopted also. I uh, feel like if you're going to go put fries down in an um, already timed, already temped fryer, um, and here we require such intense skills, I have to pay you and I want to pay you. So that's got to get passed on to the customer but other than pay what can you really do to sing the song or sell the song to yeah. the, to the to the worker it's more like hey you're going to come here and no one's really going to yell at you and you're going to get a good family meal you're going to be treated with some respect and cuz i can't really sell you on the heat or the conditions or the hours it's it's a it's a misery
0: and that you're just going to have to live through right yeah.
2: so what can i do I can pay you, and I can be as, um, as respectful to you as possible.
0: That's very human. It makes me really happy that <laughs> the world is moving
1: that way. Well, come on over. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> what do you get paid? Come on. Yeah. This might be sort of a weird question, just talking about this. I am purely curious, as someone who has written a lot about kitchen life and you know running a restaurant. When you go to another restaurant, can you just enjoy the experience as a diner, or do you think about what's going on in the kitchen? as you're there.
2: I really can just eat the food. I don't have any, um, fascination or, um, excitement about what's going on in the kitchen. And I think I'm generally, uh, knowledgeable about what's going on in the kitchen. So it's not, um, an astonishing moment, for example, when the plate is set down in front of you and it starts to smoke or there's um, something liquid, which should be solid or something solid, which should be liquid or something hot that should be cold. Like I, I already understand how all that happened. And even it doesn't have to be techno, even back Uh, back in the day when people would marvel at the dots on a plate. It's like, oh yeah, it's just this tiny little squeeze bottle and it has a nozzle that's really tiny or this is how things get tall with the PVC piping that you, um." (laughs) so to know sort of how things are manufactured makes them not so exciting as the average consumer would be where you actually spend a minute going how on earth did they do this? So I just go as a diner and, and I'm able to just enjoy the the product
0: that's wonderful not how
2: it's manufactured
0: yeah that's great that you can enjoy it and feel like i i mean maybe i'm just like old and jaded but i feel like lately i can't read anything without seeing how it was written like my job is to write and to edit and i i i would like to get out of that because mm-hmm. even when things are beautiful and perfect like all i can see is the structure and i want to i want to be able to go back to the point of like having the pure joy of just consumption well, that would make
2: me wonder, is the writing that beautiful and perfect then? Because if you can still smell the architecture of it, <laughs> it hasn't done its proper job. I mean, if you ascribe to that, I do, that the, the job of the artist is to retreat and let the art speak and not the artist.
0: I like that. I like that philosophy. I think I'm going to start working Well, same out. with
2: the chef. Like, I don't, know, I don't care. You know, you walk into that restaurant and chef recommends or chef wants you to eat this left to right. And I'm just like, I got to go. Get me the check. I don't care what chef wants. I'm the customer.
1: So Prune is a restaurant that people associate with many things. Um, but I think one of the big ones is brunch. I've had brunch at Prune many times. It's awesome. I'm just curious. How did Brunt, how did the restaurant first become famous for that? I mean, not first famous, but there's still a crowd hanging outside
0: it's like it's like a huge
1: crowd and i remember the last time i was there there was waiting outside there was an old gentleman who was like oh yeah i heard best bloody best bloody marys and his son was like where would you hear that and he's like i I, I don't know it was somewhere
0: it's just like it's known it it was like it was like nothing i
1: could remember i was like was that like something like
0: it's everywhere Frank though Br- Bruni right? road or something
1: everywhere? i mean
0: yeah what's what's what? what's the deal with brunch Gabriel? yeah brunch
2: <laughs> um here's the deal with brunch uh it i started brunch a couple of years i don't remember two or three after prune opened so prune had already established its reputation in the beginning and um i freaking love brunch and i know that is not thing that chefs say but i love to cook brunch i love eggs it's probably um a relic of my coming up it's one of the earliest services i worked at a short order joint in northampton massachusetts while i was going to college i worked late night hash slinging with you know eggs on the griddle top um with oleo and potatoes that came out of a bag already peeled and you just dumped them shredded onto the same flat top <laughs> where you cook the eggs um, I'm not saying the food was so great but the speed and energy and adrenaline I freaking love brunch. so it's something that I've always personally enjoyed it and it it, it is a um, it's a feat to work that fast um, and in the case of prune in my opinion if I may say that well because of course now all the eggs are cooked in a pan with sweet butter and all the roasties are made you know individually with the good oil and the good butter. And anyway, I'm just saying to cook with finesse at that speed and that volume is, um, something I still get a giant, um, you know, swelling ego. It's, about. It's quite it's, the brunch menu. There's um, a lot of variety. A, there's a lot of variety. Um, it's a big menu. We do have 10 Bloody Marys. I know that seems so, um, giant, but it's just like one Bloody Mary mix, but we, you know, this one's with tequila and this garnish, and this has, um, Aquavit and this garnish, but it puts some variety and interest in the drink. And, um, you know, brunch is like a, an emblem of a relaxed day that I never get to live, but at least it looks good and I would love to provide it for others. It means you're sleeping in. If you're day drinking, it means you definitely have time for a nap later. Um, You probably went out the night before. So these are things that I don't exactly get to participate in, but I love to provide the circumstances for someone else.
0: And I love that idea too, that like executing brunch Really well at at a really high culinary level, like you do prune. It's like it's like setting the video game to expert mode and just being (laughs) like, yeah, I can fucking pull this off. Like,
2: it's intense. Yeah, it's it's very I mean, Prune is 30 seats and we do 240 covers at brunch in five hours. That's beyond. It is a little beyond. Right. So when you're standing in line and we see you with the Sunday paper, we're just like, "Mm, no, 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 (laughs) no. So how did it build? Was it just word of mouth or Mm -hmm. was it? it... All of Prune is word of mouth. There's never been a PR mechanism or a, a, a machine of any kind of PR. It just opened the doors and you put the menu in the window. And I think that's the document that generates some interest.
1: I mean it's just the quintessential small East Village restaurant, I feel like, you know?
2: I know, but you probably have to think back to nineteen ninety nine. And I agree with you. Now it prune is sort of like a dime a dozen everywhere. In fact I feel like eighty others do it better than we do. But I think in ninety nine, um when we were starting, it was not the quintessential East Village restaurant. It was the
1: the beginner.
0: It defined the form. Well,
1: so what was going on in nineteen ninety nine?
2: I can tell you. <laughs> well, there was no brunch, for one thing. What? There was um, the kind of brunch with all you can drink no. mimosas God. for um, seven ninety nine. No, That's not brunch. Nobody needs that. <laughs> and the western omelet done out on the griddle, and um, so there was no brunch. And the menus were. Um, I can tell you some things that were happening in nineteen ninety nine. One that I quote often because I just couldn't never get over it—the ostrich carpaccio with sesame lime emulsion—that <laughs> was one. I was like,
0: that is very of its time. I
2: really don't want to eat that. <laughs>
1: yeah. If you're gonna eat ostrich, I don't know if you should eat it with all that stuff. You know,
0: that's a lot of flavors.
2: But at the time, the menu descriptions were about a paragraph long per item. You had many, 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 many ingredients on the plate. They were starting to locate the source of the ingredients, so there could be some of that um, diver-picked scallop from... I remember reading a menu um, in Brooklyn that, in fact, didn't even use the object, only the varietal. So it was like an early-girl salad with some um, green zebras and some tongues of fire and um do you even know what i'm saying i mean of I mean, course you do yeah, It was but, like some tomatoes and i had some beans in it and then like i'm gonna name four kinds of lettuce but not ever say the word lettuce and so it was that kind of menu that writing. feels
0: very like poetry seminar
2: yeah i mean i don't know take your pick now it's swung the other direction yeah. it's like lamb right <laughs> carrot and that's it that's the whole menu olive right and you're like okay wait what are you doing to it or is it the loin or the so i don't know it's We've been everywhere, haven't we? We've, we've.
0: Yeah. uh, But Prune, like, stayed the course.
2: You know, Prune just has a voice and uh, we sing the song in it.
0: And it works? All the time. All the time.
1: Well, Gabrielle, it's time for something we like to call the lightning round. This is nothing you need to be afraid of. Maybe just a little bit.
2: This goes around. This is a thing. The lightning round? Yeah. You've heard of it. I mean, I just. (laughs) did another podcast and like now we come to the point where we am
1: like Aww. oh really oh now we feel less cool ah, i thought oh. we invented it now i can't believe you're on other <laughs> podcasts we invented it eight months ago
0: <laughs> well the lightning round is 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 a, is a thing of beauty and and we're happy to be part of the grand tradition of every podcast doing one i mean i'll just
2: tell you that i'm terrible at them i'm so slow but go ahead you'll do lightning and i'll do um, the
1: judge of that
0: like like slow motion <laughs> like the, the rickety light bulb round. Okay, so the
1: first lightning round question is you're in a car, you're on a road trip, you're by yourself, you're listening to some music and you're maybe singing along to it. What is it?
2: Late, uh, pink. Really? <laughs> some pink, yeah.
1: You're just yeah, driving in the road. Blow me.
0: Some- <laughs> like, that's really good road trip music there. Blow me one like, last kiss, man. <laughs> yeah, I love it. Okay, you walk into a bar you've never been to before, and you walk up to the bar. What is your drink?
2: Gin and tonic.
0: Any specific requests or bartender's choice?
2: Oh, Tanqueray and tonic, extra lime, 50-50. It's
0: a good move.
1: You got a wallet full of cash, you're bored, it's the airport. What is your airport vice?
2: Oh, I finally get to read. So I get to go to the Hudson News and just stack up
0: if you were not a writer and restauranter and chef what would you be doing with your life well
2: (laughs) i do like to organize things so i've often fantasized about the sort of ups job like i would love to wear the outfit i drive a mean truck and i like to stack things and get them there on time so it sounds like a low thing maybe, uh, but for me, that's that would be pretty fun. <laughs> I, a, really
1: I fun. had a friend who was like the ultimate sort of fashion hipster lady, and she wanted to do that job, and she couldn't pass any of the tests.
0: You have to like lift it's 70 really pounds hard. over your head yeah. or something. Okay, well, I do that all yeah, the I time. I know. I'm not right. saying you couldn't, but right. I think maybe.
1: Right. You lift heavy things.
2: You pack the truck right. You get it across town. You pick the right route.
1: Say hello to the customer. <laughs> uh. Okay, the last question is, uh, what do you like to cook at home for your family? What's your go-to dish?
2: I don't like to cook at home for my family. I love that answer. (laughs) I really can't stand it.
0: (laughs) Perfect. Cool. So your go-to dish is no.
2: Well, of course, I have to feed the damn people. And um, (laughs) they're getting a little better. But it's pretty simple. It's very um, a piece of protein and some mash or pasta or some kind of starch and a vegetable. Very tedious.
1: Gabrielle, thanks so much for coming in and chatting with us today. Thanks for having me.
0: Check out Gabrielle on the latest season of Mind of a Chef on PBS, which is on a different channel everywhere. So check your local listings.
1: There's a new episode every other Monday morning. If you're not already a subscriber, search your podcast app for The Eater Upsell or go to iTunes.com slash Eater Upsell.
0: And as always, you can visit Eater.com, where you can find more episodes, read transcripts, and all sorts of other cool stuff.
1: The Eater Upsell is recorded in the Vox Media Studios in beautiful Midtown Manhattan. Our producer is Maureen Giannone.
0: Our editors are Dion Lee and Nick Friedemann. Our studio team is Will Bukema, Alex Ulrich, Mark Paradise. Our editor-in-chief is Amanda Klute. I'm Helen Rosner, and that guy is Greg Morabito. Thanks for listening.